Hey, what's up, guys? So on the last episode of Muscle Minds, we talked all about the central nervous system. We learned how as you get stronger, your central nervous system becomes more resilient. It helps you to be able to push heavier loads and increase your intensity in your training. Today, we're going to talk about the flip side of that coin and how as bodybuilders, it's important that as we get stronger, that we're using our muscle and not our central nervous system to move the weight. Scott has a bunch of charts, graphs, and studies, and we are going to dig into the science as usual today on Muscle Minds. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McDaly. All of our programming is brought to you by True Nutrition. And today we are going to dive back into central nervous system adaptation from training. And uh, what, what, what did you say here, Scott? This is like applying uh, central nervous system adapt, training adaptations to produce muscle growth. Yeah, it sort of it gives some more specific context to the things we talked about last time, like all the stuff related to the central nervous system. But specifically, it's just some like none of this is there's more update information, but this is from all these are taken from a review article that a guy named Digby Sale put out a long while ago. Um, it's hard to study these things in the context of resistance exercise and training, but it's some basic ideas. And and here's the overall context. It's really kind of important, and I have. I have actually a lot more in a particular um, talk that I give on the mind-muscle connection. And the main theme is that our bodies and our nervous system in particular have been engineered through nature, um, through our biology, through evolution, to find the most economical, quote, efficient way to lift loads and to produce movement. So. It's a huge investment in just making the muscle bigger when you can obviously get better performance just by changing how you drive it. Yes. Meaning how, how the nervous system activates it. And we see that with that first thing that I, I mentioned, like right at the beginning, I think of the last podcast we did was where if you look at the extent to which muscle strength goes up in a newbie, you can, you can double your strength in a matter of a half a year easily for many people, but you haven't doubled your muscle mass. Yeah. So that's the nervous system. And the nervous system is its so much easier to get um, more skillful in a certain way, oh, even though you wouldn't consider these like skilled movements, you're just picking something straight up. But obviously like Olympic lifts, squats, you know, multi-joint movements do entail a good amount of skill, but there's actually underneath what's going on all sorts of very important things that are adaptations that allow you to get so much stronger. We're not going to go into it like a ton of those. We can if people have questions or if you do, I'll, I'll expound upon some of the ideas. But like even, even things like if you look in the brain at the, the parts of the motor areas that are involved with sending signals down to the muscles during a concentric versus an eccentric movement. So when you lift versus you load, different areas of the brains of the brain is activated, turned on and off for each aspect of those. No kidding. Turned on and yeah. off. So I'm thinking, yeah. I think you, of the you, things being turned on, but I wouldn't think of other areas being turned off, but it does make sense. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're different patterns and they different, they require substantially different amounts of muscle mass being activated. Concentrics, you're much weaker relative to eccentrics and that's a function of speed. So the, the faster a movement, the less amount of force you can produce concentrically. 
whereas eccentrically you can produce more force than you can voluntarily and mm. it's pretty much you know an absolute certainty that some of that that you you have some level of inhibition during an eccentric movement even maximal eccentrics there's probably some inhibition emg suggests that the amount of force that most people can produce during maximal lengthening contractions when you get in a, an isokinetic machine for instance and you and the, it forces you down mm-hmm. on a knee extension or whatever thing you just can't produce as much force relative to the muscle that's there than you can when you when you force that muscle to contract with electrical stimulation your brain your nervous system the inhibitory influences are definitely there to protect you from just tearing the muscle yeah so when you to lift to lift a load let's you know let's say you know let's say i had a 20 pound dumbbell here and i curled it up if i still activated the same amount of muscle that dumbbell would never go down unless you know eventually i had fatigue and i just wouldn't be able to hold it up but assuming if we take fatigue out of the picture you lift something up and then to lower it you have to activate less muscle yeah that makes sense you have to you have to turn off some of those neurons. Um, the data is kind of mixed as to whether, what the population is of the neurons used to lift versus low. Some people have suggested that there's even sort of a different subpopulation of neurons. Like you might use more type twos, maybe, but probably not. There's some data suggesting that when lowering things. Some of that's probably a function of training. But so like in a very basic level, just lifting and lowering involves like a totally different activation pattern it's like forward and reverse on your car yeah that's kind of what you're doing like if you think about it like you know if 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 something in the mechanism of your car that allows you to go forward and backward were to grow by virtue of driving forward really fast and driving backward and then just keeping driving over the same spot over and over which is what we do when we lift and lower a weight repeatedly um then uh, you can see that there's a totally different things. Putting the car in drive versus putting it in reverse is is a complete change in the the, the basic function of the vehicle. Sure, complete change in direction. So neurologically, it's completely different. So anyway, the point of point of that that's just one little one little piece that shows you like there's so much involved with the nervous system that's going to step in and make it such that you know. If we can just make a nervous system adjustment in skill or motivated activation pattern, firing rate, or they call it rate coding sometime, sometimes, then that's a much simpler thing to do, you know, than to make the muscle bigger. It's sort of like you want to drive faster well, for a given level of effort or a given level of, of foot pedal pressure on your accelerator. Well, you just press the accelerator a little bit more. That's like a nervous system adaptation. Very simple one to do. Or you could go out and get a bigger engine that's, that just runs at a faster speed for a given RPMs and, a, and signal from the foot pedal. That's a, that's a huge pain in the ass when the most, the, the most immediate thing you can do is simply get better at learning how to drive faster, which just means pressing on the, on the accelerator more. Yeah. So our whole system is set up to be able to make those adjustments by changing the nervous system because there's so many points of flexibility and neuroplasticity that are available there which don't require the outlay of energy that comes with building muscle, which is a huge, you know, everything I've talked about with changing the architecture of the cell and the satellite cells and the amount of food you have to eat and making sure you have enough protein available and rest. And like, that's a giant deal. Like who's ever changed an engine block? I haven't, but it's a big fucking deal to change the engine in a vehicle. You know, Mm -hmm. they did that to my F 350. It took a while. 
I got a brand new engine in there after I blew out the other one. Yeah, I remember. That's that. a big friggin' deal, you know. Easier just to drive a little with a little more accelerator. Yeah, you know, and that's what the nervous system is. So, um, so the trick then is, and this is why I want to just talk about this for a while. Is let people kind of get an understanding for how good the nervous system is with that. Is to is to is to make sure that you're doing things that put the stress on the muscle especially in the context of progressive overload because um, that's the thing as you probably know anyone who's done progressive overload you just look at the logbook and you just want to beat that damn logbook and you can beat those reps just by going faster getting sloppy there's a million ways to do it but that doesn't necessarily mean that you provided more stress and stimulus for the muscle and the other side of the coin is it doesn't necessarily mean that those increases that you see in reps or load in the logbook represent more muscle that you gained. It may be that you've just got sloppier with your form or you went faster or something like that. Um, I'll t throw out an anecdote, which is was pretty fascinating. I'll never forget this. I think I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but long time ago, like literally almost, uh, gosh, this was over, this is 25 years ago maybe. I was, when I was in grad school, I was training people in the morning at a gym um, and I had a, a guy come in, and he and his dad both came in. And his dad had worked, owned a construction company. He was a contractor. He'd worked construction his entire life. So, and you could tell he's a rugged guy, just strong, and had to be strong to do what he'd done. His son also worked construction. I think his son maybe was now, you know, sort of more on the administrative side. So they wanted to start training. The the dad had worked construction. And now he's not doing that kind of thing. He, you know, it's like I'm getting a little bit fat now because I'm not working, and we got a the business gotten bigger. So they wanted find a trainer and start exercising yeah. we're just start i'm just giving them basic stuff like trying to show them how to do things and i'm noticing with the dad that like he has you know everything we're starting to do he has an inability to just activate the target muscle huh. he wants to use as much muscle as he possibly can yeah. because that's exactly what you want to do when you're on a job site yeah yeah you know if you're going to go pick something up you don't you know you know, you don't stand up, up upright and try to do like a strict curl with it. Right. <laughs> you know, you throw your, you throw your, use your legs, not your low back as much as you can and engage as much muscle mass. You use uh, momentum, you know, get things moving and dynamically move them. If you got to throw some sandbags up to the back of your pickup truck, you know, you, you don't squat down and stand up with them and then do a, a strict curl and put them on like some kind of a robot in assembly line. You know, you exert the least amount of energy possible. Yeah. So his nervous system, he, he had done, you know, so many tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of repetitions of that kind of shit through the course of his life that it was really weird. It was like totally foreign to him to try to do it any differently. Similar probably so, like a power lifter who comes to bodybuilding, you know? That's that's exactly the, the, the uh, difference that I, I talk about at the beginning of that talk is that powerlifting, the idea is to engage as much muscle mass as you can to do the the top the big three lifts mm -hmm. in a way that you know matches whatever the standard is you know correct correct depth and everything else you want to gauge everything everything available yeah because that gives you more driving force you're not trying to like just use your pecs to do a bench press no at all no. it's completely the opposite you want to use everything possible you know people talk about hip and leg drive on a bench press yeah you know as long as you're not butts not coming off the bench and whatever things are illegal in you know your federation do it you it just matters that the the weight moves from point a to point b whereas bodybuilding is really pretty much the opposite in most cases especially isolation exercises you're trying to like get the other muscles out of the 
except with one exception, which we can talk about too, because this is something I want to maybe we do a whole podcast on it, but definitely need to do a post on on sloppy form. And I've talked about it here before, but how that actually makes sense in terms of producing muscle growth, some slop in your form. Okay. Yeah, that would be a good, that would be a fun topic. We should do that. It's, I I mentioned it, but no one seems to get this and it's just like, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a one of my, um, hobby horses, I guess you might say as far as topic goes. All right. Well, I'll make note on that one. Yeah. So with this older guy though, so he's doing everything like this. I'm like, well, let's just do some curls. I said, actually, let's just do some dumbbell concentration curls. Okay. So, you know, we get down, block off your elbow on the inner part of your knee, and you got the dumbbell there, and you're hunkered down. All I want to do is just see movement at your elbow joint, just like pure. And I, well, sometimes I'll say to people, imagine like if you've ever been to like Walt Disney World, I think they have one of those rides where it's like the Pirate's Cove or some shit. You go, you hit on a log ride thing, and you float through the water, mm-hmm. and like they have all the, the pirates and the ghosts and those sorts of things. And like, like the first pirate's like, welcome to Walt Disney World and it's just like you know one joint is moving like and nothing else is completely you know yeah. non-authentic for a human it, you can tell it's just purely robotic that's what I'm saying just be like one of those one of those really cheap robots <laughs> I just want to see movement in the one joint nothing else mm-hmm. so he's hunkered down I he can't really kind of see me here in the video but he's hunkered down and he's curling up and he's pulling his shoulder girdle back <laughs> and he's arching his back. I'm like, no, don't do that. And I literally, I had, I put my arms around his shoulder. I said, don't, I don't want your shoulder to bounce into my hands. I want your shoulder joint to stay right where it is, mm-hmm. moving only at this, at this elbow joint. He could not do it. Holy shit. Yeah. He literally, because, because that's not how you would pick, you you know, you'd throw some body English, English into it. That's exactly what, that's what you see people do when they're doing cheat curls. Yeah. He could not do a cheat curl, so to speak, because he had just been programmed for so long. Uh-huh. So that's a highly evolved, in a certain way, nervous system that allowed that guy to do heavy manual labor for like decades yeah. and not be completely broken down. Huh. He just figured out how to do it the right way. And um, I, I had some guys come out and help me move actually some of my gym equipment. There was a, a guy who was like the veteran of the, the leader of the group, and he, he was... He was at least in his mid late forties, mm-hmm. and uh, actually kind of a smaller dude, really really skinny. Like had like his body fat was like zilch. Yeah, because just working all the time. It was really kind of interesting talking to him. And he outworked all these dudes. Yeah, <laughs> but he just but you could just see how he moved. It was like it was like artistry in motion. At least for me, and watching him picking up all. The, I'm like I knew how much that shit weighed because I moved it myself several times. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'm like I'm just not moving this one again. It's, it was worth my while and instead of spending 3 days to have these guys do it in 3 hours. And it's like the guy had just all these really highly evolved motor programs, but he was literally skinny as a rail. He mm-hmm. was probably, I don't know, maybe my height and 110 pounds. Holy crap. Really really thin. Like you would think he was had like a he was very bright and very um, animated. Like he was a healthy guy, as healthy as you could be. Like he just drank Gatorade most of the time all day. I think long he might have been on time. meth. I think he might have been on meth, Scott. I think I, you're making I a mistake about the healthy thing here. Maybe I don't know. I don't have. Maybe he could have been. I don't. But he'd been it's Florida. I, it, I talked to him because we went and picked it up and moved things over. He didn't seem like he was on meth, and he'd been doing this a long time. Most meth addicts wouldn't last like decades. Good point. It, so Good point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, he, he got about six to nine months running at that speed if you're on meth. How many teeth did he but have? But anyway, but he didn't... He, say what? Nothing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
You say how many teeth did he have? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's the thing. He he was a really bright, vibrant guy. Yeah. You know, that's why I kind of remember him. And I watched, you know, and and he's like, he's like, I bet you think you could do this. I'm like, I have no, I have no, <laughs> no, I'm not delusional at all. There's no way. I mean, I like, I like to move shit around that thing, but yeah. you guys would just wreck me. I'd be just, I'd be totally broken down after a week of it. Yeah. I said, you probably had lots of big guys come to you think they can just do this shit. No problem. He's like, all the time. We just eat them up and spit them out. I'm like, huh. I, I know you do. So he was, a, actually, this is a really good example I hadn't planned on talking about, but he was a great example of someone who was able to move really, really heavy loads, but with great efficiency or economy on a regular basis all day long. So a huge volume of heavy lifting, yeah, not resistance exercise like in the gym, but huge volume of heavy lifting on a daily basis without nutritional support and uh, a, a highly evolved set of neural programs that allowed him to know how to pick things up. And he would like, some of it was, he knew how to use a forklift. He knew how to use the dollies that they had, carpet dolly, whatever dolly. But he also was just really good at picking things up. You could just see how he just knew how to pick the right leverages and the right angles. So that's what people do on like a leg press. You showed that video and you know, people will know that you can move more weight if you don't go as deep on a leg press. Well, the purpose on the leg press, and there's a study that just came out. I think I saw it through um, Mass. I didn't read it all, but because uh, I subscribed to their their newsletter, it's good news, great, phenomenal newsletter, as a matter of fact. But they showed um, increases in glute and I believe also hamstring size, as well as quad with deep squatting, whereas only the shallower squatting, maybe it was 90 degrees, but it wasn't like ass to grass, only produces produced growth in the quads. So most, a lot of people want to squat for their entire leg, for the entire, you know, the glutes and the thigh musculature. That's what happened with the deep squatting. But you know you can move more weight and get more reps with shallower squats. Mm-hmm. That's an obvious thing if that's all you're looking for. So that very obvious notion, which people call other people out on for all the time, in the squat in inches a mile, as they say, is... Uh, is the same thing that applies at a much more nuanced level that we're not even totally aware of because of all these things that are sort of programmed into our brain um, in terms of neural activation. So anyway, let's like, let me see which figure makes sense. We'll throw up a figure and I can kind of talk people through this. A lot of this is just from one study. Actually, right. I have them all. I, I downloaded them from you in order here. So I have the first, okay. second, third, fourth, and fifth one here. Uh that first one with the trained arm. Yep, got it. And that's a nice one. That shows a couple of different things at once. Okay, that one is up. So that that shows that's just uh, this is all from a review article. I can find the original article, but that that shows um, a bilateral training study where uh, you see a couple things happen. They trained one arm, sorry, unilateral training. So they trained one arm and the other arm was not trained. So if you look across at the bar graphs, there are strength at the very top. You've got a greater increase in strength in the trained arm, but this oh-so-commonly uh, noted cross-training effect was apparent there in strength as well. So the untrained arm on the right actually increased in strength, even hmm. though it wasn't trained. So huh. the nervous system, yeah, this is, a, this is a really, really common cross-training effect, it's called, most of the time. Um, and this is why people will say, you know, hey, you should, uh, in order to maintain strength in 
an arm that's been casted or a side of your body that's been injured for some reason that you can't train or it's been immobilized, train the good side. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, this is the main main rationale for that is Holy that you crap. maintain the activate you maintain the neurological adaptations huh. that are contribute to your strength in doing so through yeah. the, via this cross training effect. So wow. um, you could see actually if you look at the uh, the activation level, this, this is the third bar graph down. This is at max activation. You see a and this is just a rough. I think this is probably a root mean square EMG measurement just to generic level of total electrical activity, maximal electrical activity, so the, the just the, the rough, raw neural input descending from the brain to the, um, the biceps, the elbow flexors in this case, I think it was, is greater because not in the untrained arm, because the other arm was being trained. So mm. activation levels has gone up, so you, main, you can maintain those neurological adaptations um, by training a good side and it'll still carry over or cross over to the other side. So you can see over the course of the training, there was about a 10%, maybe an 8% increase in cross-sectional area from the trained arm, which is on the left. And then if they relatively, so here's what's kind of interesting. If you relativize the act, amount of activation during a max effort relative to the force that was produced, that actually went down. So, Something about the activation was more coordinated, such that the amount of activation produced, the electrical activity in general to produce a given amount of force was reduced. And those are some of the deeper aspects of, of neural adaptation that, that, um, that are really pretty cool. We probably don't need to get into it. I don't want to like get too far off topic with that. But you basically get better, neurologically speaking, at producing more force as well as you produce, you don't have to expend as much activation energy. You become more skilled, which is what's represented there in that amount of activation for a given amount of force. So a given, each amount of force is actually also relatively easier because of the neurological adaptations, as well as the fact that in this case, because they're testing during the movement that they actually trained with, mm -hmm. There's more muscle mass there. Okay. So you would expect that too. If you the same amount of activation with the bigger muscle will just give you more force. Yeah. So that would reduce that activation relative to force value. So there's two things that are going on there. One, nervous system is adapted, figured out how to be more energetically efficient in terms of sending the neural impulses down to reduce the amount of force, and now you have a big a bigger motor in the way of having a bigger muscle. So you see that. Okay. So and that's like, that's a percent change of like over 30% or 20% in the untrained arm. So that's pretty, pretty substantial in terms of just EMG, or sorry, sorry, strength, whereas the cross-sectional area went up like 8%. So here we're talking about a four-fold greater increase in strength relative to the increase in cross-sectional area. Okay. So if you want to talk like real, real roughly, it's like only one-fifth of your strength gains could be explained by increase in cross-sectional area and increase by muscle you're saying yeah more muscle yeah okay that so. that makes sense i guess that if you get i mean it takes you have to get a lot stronger for a long time before you see a muscle change and you got that guy who was the skinny dude who was lifting a lot but it didn't show up as muscle for him he may he probably had genetics be kind of thin, ectomorphic, yeah. if you want to use that term. 
He wasn't eating to support it. He wasn't doing anything to try to get bigger. In fact, here, here's the thing, and in his case, that everyone's got different genetic programming, but given what he was doing, um, th having that phenotype, having a body that's like that, because he was really, he moved pretty quickly too, and he moved all day long. Yeah. So he actually had sort of a strength endurance type of physical load that he was presented with, you know, at least probably five out of seven days out of the week. Yeah. So rather than, rather than the body saying, okay, well, let's, let's do this. You're picking up really heavy shit. Let's, you know, put on 50 pounds of muscle that you don't have to carry around with you, mm -hmm. which is dead weight for like half, like let's say you, half of your time is spent going back to get the next load. Mm -hmm. So 50% of the time you're just dragging the dead weight around. Then you have to eat to accommodate all of that. Well, he wasn't eating to accommodate all of that. I don't. I think he literally was just drinking Gatorade. A lot of those guys, you know, who work, especially here in Florida, where it's so hot, all you want to do is get fluids in. Yeah, you're not. You're not trying to eat a big meal, man. You like you get something for breakfast, maybe, and then you just have a giant meal when you get home. So that was a really that was a very smart way for his system to adapt. Obviously, he knew how to move the weights around. His nervous system had adapted in a way that made it. He made him really, really proficient at doing all of that. So. We're trying to hack the system and basically avoid becoming proficient mm. to a certain degree, but at the same time use the loads that come with progressive overload as a way to stimulate and send that specific signal that we're not, there's going to be no neural adaptations that are involved here with making this easier to do. We're going to continue to stress the muscle in a way that, that really sort of sends the signals like, okay, we're going to have to get bigger because that's just the nature of the beast. There's no, there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. And plus there's plenty of nutritional anabolism su supplements or super supplements to support that kind of, kind of growth. So how do we so, do that, Scott? That's the, that's the well, question. We're getting there. I got, okay. I got a couple more, couple more things. So this is what's interesting here. So let's throw up, um, uh, we can skip this The trained arm and untrained arm with the two, two plots. We'll skip that. Okay. We'll go to the one that has the, the, the guy at the top, sort of the little squatting figure there. Got him. He's up. So this was a, a study where they trained um, individuals using a squat. And they increased muscle size in the quads by about 10%, I believe it was. I have the um, – there you go. It just popped up. I have the, uh, the actual original study here. I just didn't – couldn't put that in there. So here's the interesting thing. So they, they trained for, I can't remember how long it was, I can look at it, standard training regime. Increased in squat one rep max was about 70%, pretty substantial. But that's all they did to increase to train. They didn't do, they weren't doing leg presses, they weren't doing knee extensions, their chest were squatting. So when they tested one rep max on the squat, um, it went up quite a bit. Yeah. Fortunately, they didn't make any EMG measurements on the squat or elsewhere, but they did do it on knee extension. I'll get to that in just a second. Okay. So lots of compound movement. You're driving with your hips and your knees. Um, so they also test the strength on the leg press because they had that there in the lab. A lot of times they'll just test all the shit they have there. Yeah. And you got some strength gains in the leg press, but they didn't train with that leg press. Mm. So there was carryover. So this shows very distinctly the specificity of training principle. Is that if you train to get stronger or, or bigger using squats, you're going to get stronger during squatting movements. And it's going to be greatest during the particular movement that you employ. 
makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, when you try to take take that strength and apply it to a leg press, it's pretty close. You only get about half the strength gains in this particular study. They mm-hmm. didn't track the leg press, but it's but it's not too different in terms of the segments being a compound movement, et cetera, et cetera. Now remember, they've got a bigger quad. So they put them on a knee extension and also did a, a, a maximal voluntary contraction. So that's an isometric. And they didn't do any of those in their training. But it's just a knee extension. You just sit there, they strap you in, you say, okay, kick out your knee as hard as you can. They've got bigger quads. 10% is substantial. You'll see that. That's visible. Mm, yeah. Like that's a before and after you'd post, you know, on social media. I'll take that. the leg. Yeah, yeah that's pretty damn, pretty damn good. No increase in strength. Nothing. No increase on the leg extension, huge increase on the squat, which they trained, some increase on the leg press, which they did not train, no increase on the leg extension. That surprises me, I guess. No carryover. Yeah, none. Wow. Wow. Yep. Um, The EMG actually went down a little bit. Huh. So they kind of speculated as to what could that possibly be. Literally, their NBC, I mean, there's a little bit of a blip there, but it wasn't significant. Basically, within measurement error, they got nothing. Wow. Um, it, there's, there's a couple things that could have happened. Well, first of all, that's totally nonspecific to how they trained. So, in fact, if you think about it, when, they're, when you're training and doing a squat, um, and this, was, this is another like kind of a mind fuck for people who haven't thought about it before, but you're activating both your hamstrings and your quads simultaneously, obviously. Right. So you've got something going on, you know, at your in your hamstring, for instance, and even in your rectus femoris, but in your hamstring particularly, it's called Lombard's paradox. Because when you, when you if anyone can who's listening to this, who's sitting down, they can they can think about this. Um, so when you st- stand up from a seated position, at your hip joint, you're extending at the hip. Mm-hmm. Right, hip extension. So that's your hamstrings, which cross both the hip and the knee. Mm-hmm. And your hamstrings are doing a concentric contraction. So they're shortening, right? Yeah. And they're contracting. We know this. You can feel it when you stand up. And but your hamstrings also cross the knee. So what kind of contraction is being produced when you consider the hamstrings and and the knee when you're extending at the knee? while the hamstrings are contracting. Are they getting shorter or getting longer, thinking about just the knee? The hamstring? Uh-huh. They're contracting, but the knee is extending, not not, not flexing. They would be getting longer. Yes. Yeah. So what's going on with the hamstrings? They're shortening relative to the hip and extending relative to the knee. Yeah. It's a paradox. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I guess so it is paradox. Yeah, so that that's a that's a translation of angular momentum that happens in biarticular muscles. They sort of function to to bring about like you take some of the torque that's produced by the glutes and the hip extensors, and they get translated into the knee, and it, it's it basically a biomechanical phenomenon that's really pretty cool hmm. um, that you see in like jumping and running muscles. So, and anyway, the reason I bring that up is that now you go from Squatting or even leg pressing where you've got hamstrings and quads being activated in a coordinated manner During these movements short like maybe not changing length much in the hamstrings But definitely being activated the quads are obviously shortening and lengthening um, We're uh, not thinking about the rectus femoris now because that's also bi- biarticular But the other three quad muscles are going co- doing concentric and eccentric contractions 
So that's how you train. And now when you come and sit down on a knee extension and you just try to do a knee extension, what the hell are your hamstrings supposed to do? I see. Nothing, right? You, because yeah. they're not needed, but you will have co-contraction when you do that. And they demonstrated that when they, you know, you bring people in, you say, just do a knee extension, their hamstrings will fire up. So that could have been reducing the force, especially because they, the way they trained required both hamstring and, and uh, uh, quad contraction at the same time or co-contraction. So at any rate, there was no strength gain there on the, on the, on the knee extension at all, even though there was muscle size gain. So let me see if there's anything else here worth looking into before I dig in and like kind of translate some of this stuff into what it really means. Uh, yeah, let's go to we can come back to those if we need to. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the last the last one that shows a drop jump. All right. Got it. Just talk about this briefly a little bit. So um, this shows, remember I talked about, um, inhibition and disinhibition last time Yes. for like those maximal efforts and how like Jordan is someone who shakes a lot sometimes on his max effort lifts. That'll happen to people when they're pushing really, really hard. So this figure, let me take a look at it here so I can talk through it shows this is after people had been trained doing drop jumps, Okay. which is a very ballistic movement. Um, so basically if you look at what's going on in the plantar flexors, like your gastroc, your soleus, you jump off a, a box and you bounce off the floor and you get what's called a, it's a stretch shortening cycle and the nervous system hopefully can harness some of that energy and you produce actually an eccentric contraction at the calf muscle where the Achilles tendon is. I may have mentioned this last time too, that big long Achilles tendon actually is a giant spring. And you load up that spring with tension so that after you hit the ground and you try to jump back up, that tension that's, that's produced, that's in the spring of the Achilles tendon can be harnessed to produce plantar flexion to increase the jump that you get. So you get a you stretch shortening. So you stretch the muscle out to some degree when you land and then it shortens right afterwards. And that's basically using the muscle as a rubber band to take advantage of the connective tissue pieces that are in the muscle, the series elastic components, as people call them, to, as a rubber band, to harness elastic energy and then use that recoil to propel back. So that happens every time we run, for instance. Hmm. That's one of the reasons, probably this explains at least, why you see a lot of the best sprinters in the world, they don't have gigantic calves like you do. They don't, because they don't need them. The calf muscle is not there to necessarily drive maximal fast propulsion during a sprint you just need to have enough muscle to uh, and and having a big tendon is good enough muscle to be able to hold tendon to allow that that tendon to stretch out and hmm. and gather the elastic energy that's then used on the recoil to spring forward during the plantar flexion and the drive phase of the running gait so you don't need a bunch of muscle mass what you want is a, a bigger spring yeah the bigger the spring the better the bigger the spring the smaller the muscle so you see a lot of really good sprinters who have very small calves. Hmm. So, so that's that's what's going on there. So here's but here's what's happening neurologically, and I'll and I'll so when you have um, someone who's untrained, which is that top plot there, that's an EMG. That's so that's electrical activity, 
and that tray shows what happens when they um, jump off the uh, the box, and then when they hit in the top trace, you see where it says inhibition there. Mm-hmm. When you hit the ground and under high force, you start to stretch out that muscle. Those inhibitory influences, the Golgi tendon organs, come into play, and they reduce muscle force as a protective mechanism. And if you, this is what happens to me every time I jump down off of anything. You ever jump down off of like, for me, it's like anything over about twelve inches. You hit the ground, and it's just a thud. Yes. You're like, oh shit, you know, that that some of that's that's inhibition because hmm. you're 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 not having any activation of the muscle hmm. to create harness some of that, that energy in the tendons yeah. and in the series elastic components of the muscle. So you just thud it just like bone on concrete or whatever, pretty much with a thin layer of shoe sole in between you. So you get inhibition because you're not used to that. And it's like better to sort of crumble and fall mm. than stay upright and produce tensions that mm. are dangerous to the muscle and tear something. I see. When you yeah. land that hard. Yeah. Unless you start training. So normally you have inhibition and people I think can sort of, um, conceptually grasp that because like that happens to me every time i step even off like a, a high step it'll feel that way mm-hmm. whereas someone who's trained will have something else happen so when they hit the ground you see the uh, electrical activity increases during that time when they're on the ground before they spring back up after these box jumps yeah and that's because you want to have increased activity in the muscle so the muscle holds tight so the tendon can stretch out so you want the muscle, muscular pieces of muscles all the way through the whole kinetic change from the across the ankle and the knee and the hip to all be nice and solid so that you can use that elastic energy because that's free. It's just coming from gravity, essentially, Yeah. and harness that like a rubber ball and bounce back up. In fact, people who get really good at, at drop jumps like this, this, you see this like volleyball players or basketball players or, or athletes who do a lot of these because being able to jump high receivers – to catch a ball, what have you, they can actually like do like a three foot drop or even like five or six feet. They can jump off a box that's five feet and end up jumping onto something that's six feet high. All right. They're actually, they can harness like all, almost pretty much all of the, the energy that comes from the drop and then add to it with their own muscular energy and go even higher. Mm-hmm. And you see that in people who like do a lot of plyometrics. It's really pretty cool. How, this is how badass the nervous system is, is people will get better at figuring out how to harness that energy. So you'll have athletes who, you know, when you give them a three-foot drop jump, they can maybe jump. The highest they can get after that is four feet. Let's okay. say. I'm just making up numbers. You may, these may be off. So then you say, well, let's dump it to three and a half. And then when they then they can get four feet, you know, five inches. Mm. And you go to four feet, and they can get, you know, almost five feet. And the higher you, you give them, the more energy you input you give them from the actual drop, the more their nervous system because it's so fine-tuned, can harness that as elastic energy and translate it in that into the hop that they get back up onto the next box. Yeah, okay. So they couldn't get to four feet with a, or five feet, let's say, with a three-foot box, but you give them a four-foot box, that gives them extra drop energy, yeah. so to speak, to harness for the rebound to get back up onto the next box. So that's a badass nervous system, right? It's like yeah. it's literally like figured that out. Whereas most of us, I jump off of something three feet, and I'm just open... Okay, did I break anything? Good? <laughs> you know, like walk away, yeah. and cross my fingers, you know, and, you know, thank my lucky stars. So, what happens then? And this is something. So this applies. This will be the first thing we can kind of apply to progressive overload as you're moving um, along your path of trying to get stronger and using your logbook as a as a guide to drive the stimulus for muscle growth. 
is that when you when you're when you're lifting and you're doing movements that become somewhat ballistic or with somewhat of a bounce at the bottom, like people will do on a bench press, uh huh, um, or variety of movements, you're harnessing a stretch shortening cycle to some degree. Okay. And on the bench press, especially, I've seen people who do bench presses and literally you can see the bar like creating this massive indentation in their chest. It's oh, like, yeah. You can see the recoil in their rib cage. Oh, yeah. The musculature is like all bent down. It looks like, dude, are you made of rubber? It's like, um, you ever do the experiment in uh, like science class where you take like a turkey bone, you put it in vinegar? No. It leaches out all the, the minerals? Okay. You, no. You can do that. You take a turkey bone and put it like the wishbone. You drop it in vinegar, it'll leach out all the all the calcium phosphate and the bone mineralization. Then you have just the connective tissue, you know, like this really rubbery thing. Weird. That's what, it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, very, it's very weird. It's like, you're like, whoa, that's kind of a funky looking bone. So people can do that if they want. It's a great thing for kids. Like, it's a nice little science experiment. But you see people who do bench presses sometimes, not that often anymore, but who, who's literally their rib cages look like that. It's like, dude, you look like you're, like you've, you know, your rib cage is nothing but cartilage because you're just sinking in. That strength that they get from that bounce is is part of, of what we're is, is what we're seeing here in a nervous system that's learned how to make use of a stretch shortening cycle in the musculature, as well as with the bar bounce off the chest hmm. and all these other skill related things that actually increase performance, so they can get a heavier weight back up to the starting point. But that's because the nervous system has figured out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Not so much because they have a larger muscle mass in order to drive that. And I have a, a little bit of a caveat to that, um, to some degree, because um, you're stronger on an eccentric than you are on a concentric. But So there's sort of a, a gray zone here where um, being somewhat ballistic on some movements makes sense to accommodate those differences in strength. That's the topic for the next podcast on sloppy form. But when you're bouncing things and you can tell you're bouncing things, that's making use of a stretch shortening cycle to some degree, which okay. is the, the nervous system. And remember the nervous system is smart as shit. It'll figure out how to, how to allow you to get stronger and better in the gym unless you disallow all that and keep your form as consistent as you possibly can. So rep tempo is an obvious one with something like someone who's gotten sloppy on a bench or doing a pause where you eliminate the stretch shortening. So you put like, you know, if you're doing your rep counts, you put, make that a zero count or even a one count with a pause. Mm-hmm. Like people sometimes do, they'll do a reset on a deadlift rather than bouncing off the floor. I do that kind of thing. That's, yeah. I do that with my bench press too, especially now that I have my bar that with the, or the, um, the shoulder saver pad, I can bring the bar right yeah. down to my chest, kind of reset it, and then drive, you know, right back down, same thing. Right. So yeah, is this so, a good thing or a bad thing? I'm, I'm, I'm not putting the pieces together in my head here. So if someone starts off and they've got a little, very little stretch shortening cycle involved, uh-huh. and over the course of six months, let's say, they continue to bench press or whatever movements they're using where, where a stretch or a bounce or, or that sort of stretch shortening cycle like but it could be like a, a full dead or, or even like deadlifting a rack dead where you bounce the bar off of the supports. Yeah. Anything you get this sort of rapid like bounce from the bottom, from the, from the, from the changeover from the eccentric to the concentric that's very rapid, that has got some component that's a stretch shortening cycle, which is, a, which is a, a very savvy way for your nervous system 
to get that weight moving from an eccentric lowering um, direction vector back in the other way. And that's just the nervous system doing that. So you could go from not being very good at that and not employing that at day zero of your training blast or your off season to six months later, you've gotten pretty adept at stretch shortening and, and having, as we see in that last figure you put up facilitation rather than inhibition. Mm -hmm. And what you're seeing in the logbook isn't representative of muscle growth. It's representative of a neurological adaptation. I see. Yeah. So you're, you're, that's, that's the whole trick is you don't want the logbook to represent that. You want the logbook to represent muscle growth. Yeah. To the extent you possibly can. It's almost impossible to do that completely. Yeah. Uh, just because it's going to happen. Even with, you know, if you take a new exercise, you keep the rep tempo the same, you're still going to have nervous system adaptations, you know, that, that are going to occur to allow the strength, strength gain to happen. You have it, if you're, especially if you're a newbie or it's an exercise you've never done before or you're coming back to, even if you use a metronome. You know, you're still going to have activate. You're going to still have some neurological and even some other morphological things that will happen um, that uh, that are allowing for those strength improvements or those performance improvements that aren't muscle growth. Okay. So you want to keep everything else the same. Yes. So uh, here's what I'm getting then: that you know, when when I brought this question to you in the pre the last episode. Um, I was I was looking at how this adaptation of central nervous system allows us to dig further, get further into our our sets and our reps, and be able to handle kind of like more intensity and grind out you know more reps than we might have been able to handle previous years ago, months ago, whatever. Right. Um, I was seeing this as the the positive aspects of this. What you're telling us is that the central nervous system, because it can get stronger than the amount of muscle you're gaining, that it could be a, a bad thing, really, that it, it could, a strong central nervous system could be, um, could be overriding the muscle that like you may be getting stronger, but it could be your central nervous system getting stronger, not that your muscles getting bigger. Well, yeah, the central nerve, something's happening in the central nervous system, not that it's quote unquote getting stronger, but it's getting more adept at moving those loads. Yeah. You know, you're getting stronger. Your performance is better, but not because the muscle has has gotten has gotten bigger, but because the central nervous system has developed a better strategy for lifting the weight. Yeah, and some yeah. of that could be like you know that like like digging in and learning how to grind and learning how to psych up and push yourself. Uh huh. For many many years, and I still have this tendency to do this. I will get so riled up and overstimulated. I'm like, there's an inverted U between performance and arousal level. You yeah. know, you no arousal and you like you just you you know you shit the shit the, the you know the the porch like it's not good like you just like a horrible set like you got to be ready yeah and then you more and more arousal eventually you know you're you're at like a peak arousal level that matches what is needed for the skill aspect as well as sort of the central drive aspect so if it's a squat and let's say um like ben, ben chow is someone who talks about this probably a lot of people have heard of uh, and know and ben's a great guy and he's got a really really proficient squat and for him he very much needs to be very in a calm centered place i'm not trying to speak for ben but this is what i picked up on from I don't know, at least three or four times he's mentioned this on who adds podcast when he's been on he he goes in and he's not like you know getting slapped around and like you know smelling salts and all this kind of stuff 
for him, he has to find this very, very specific, nuanced, skilled groove for his squats mm-hmm. so that he can have his best squat performance. And the amount of like overall psychological arousal, like, you know, rip roaring, ready to go, like, you know, break down walls. That's an easy thing for him. That component has to be balanced for him in a certain way. So for him, if his arousal gets beyond that, like if he tried to like, you know, put on Metallica and scream and yell and bang his head against the bar and get under there and squat, you know, he think he'd probably fuck himself up. Yeah. It wouldn't be optimal for him at all. So your nervous system is going to have, and this is what I tend to do sometimes. I get the, cause it's fun to get like all fucking crazy and stupid and be, a, yeah. you know, be a meathead. And what happens then is I will get under the bar and I'm so aggressive with it. Yes. That I will, I will do really rapid. My reps will be rapid. Yep. And yep. part of that rapidity is, is essentially somewhat of a stretch shortening cycle. You'll see like, you know, if it's overhead press and I come down, I'm doing this, one of this, this thing. So instead of, trying to like really focus on my delts, have a good mind muscle connection there. I'm doing a lot of shrugging. Mm-hmm. So you're coming down here and I'm shrugging, shrugging the weight at that bottom part to get more reps. And I'm just throwing the weight around essentially right. in a very uncontrolled fashion. So I'll get more reps, but I got more reps, but, but my arousal level was so high that I didn't keep the form the way it was the previous, you know, 10 times I'd done that exercise. Yeah. So, that's almost meaningless for, for tracking progression mm. in the gym. Now, if you come in every single time and do it that way every single time, mm-hmm. then that's probably okay, to be honest. Except that, of course, that's a more, inju- that's a more injury-prone, it's a more dangerous way to, way to train yeah. you know, when you're just sort of letting it rip completely. Yeah, uh, Chris so, Duffin talked about the same thing uh, when I was asking him about his 1,001-pound for three-rep squat. He was saying that in his training, he had to remain calm, that he, he said like, you know, he was talking about like lifting 900 pounds calm, doing that week right. after week, you know, that working in those, like up in that rep range without getting amped up, without getting psyched up in order to, to train and have the strength he needed to get where he wanted to be. Yeah, I think, and I listened to a little bit of his stuff and you tell me this may be, maybe right, maybe wrong, but. He also had to be, he had his movement had to be very very precise. It was actually a really highly skilled thing for him to do. He yeah. spent enough years of his life under heavy loads that being able to address that sometimes like here's the obvious thing that happens to people you get under a big squat and if you're not psychologically ready like in that sort of aggressive state yeah and the bar gets on your back and you're like oh fuck this is heavy yeah you don't want that that's that's not what you want on your mindset. So for Chris or someone who's done a lot of that, he's he already knows how to get past that and put himself in the right level of aggressive state mm-hmm. to handle those super heavy, like superhuman loads. Mm-hmm. But what he also needs in order to get those three reps or to train in that way is a highly skilled movement. Yeah. So he has to have his wits about him. Yep. And be calm in a certain way. He can't be like just you know rip roaring, you know, just as an absolute maniac lunatic because then he won't have the silk component in place that he needs to have. Yeah. Yeah. That's, he doesn't need to feel that way. He doesn't need to offset that. The fact, the feeling of the heavy load because he's been there. Yeah. That's his home, man. He's been into those loads, you know, many, 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 many times. So it doesn't freak him out. Yeah. He doesn't need to super overcompensate with excessive, aggressive arousal. Like, like some people, you have to learn how to do that over the years, you know, 
So I would love to get him back on and have him on with you. Yeah. I feel like that would be a cool conversation to to get you guys together and, and talk about this. So, you know, this is funny. I'm going to tie some things together. We've talked about with what you just said with Chris is that, you know, over, over the years, depending on a person's mentality and how that lifting fits with their life and probably a number of other things, but, you know, eventually you sort of learn how to, how to, you know, get focused and get aggressive and, and be, you know, take on a high arousal frame of mind in order to handle progressively heavier, heavier, more, more difficult and stressful loads. Mm -hmm. And uh, at some point in time, like it's almost almost as if like you've got that, you've got that's that box has been checked and you can do that. Like nothing's going to, you could always turn that on whenever you need to. But in order to figure that out, you have to learn that, you know, it's sort of like, sort of like a sprinter, you know, and some people like they learn how some people don't run very well and some people run better than others, but rarely do we actually sprint. So mm. part of sprinting is it has to be a max effort to sprint, mm-hmm. but a very big part of sprinting and sprinters know this. Anyone who's ever been a, on a, like a, a speed related track athlete, they do tons of form running, you know, high knees and all this kind mm. of stuff. Like the gait that you have is really, really important. So, and they talk about having like a loose jaw or loose hands. Oh, wow. You heard this before? In the, no. Yeah. So some people this may be resonating with, so yeah, so the idea is that you're, you're like, you're driving, like you're sprinting, it's all out. Like it's, you know, if you're a world-class person, it's, you know, less than 11 seconds yeah. or, you know, maybe a couple more if you're a woman maybe, but it's not a prolonged effort, but you have to be relaxed at the same time you're putting out a maximal effort. Hmm. So for someone who like, who's like wants to run a hundred meter dash and they don't really run, it's probably best for them just to run as hard as they can. It's mm-hmm. going to be all over the place. Yeah, I would look like an absolute idiot trying to do that. You like you were running from um, something, you know? <laughs> running from a bear, like, right? Exactly. So, the, but the highly advanced person knows how to turn on that maximal arousal level, and now because of what they're trying, that so that box has been checked. But now they now there's the skill component which needs to be really really focused as well, mm-hmm. because you're literally it's sort of like, you know, when you're when you're lifting that high of a level with big loads like that. And I can't even fathom what that was like for Mm. Chris. I mean, like that's, that's beyond my level for sure. But I, I sort of liken it to something I it's, it's as if you're, 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 you're not, it's like dragsters getting back to like a racing analogy. So, you know, those, those big long dragsters that they set speed records with, like if those get off angle, just like a little bit, they just go flying off the fucking, uh, the, the track. Yeah, because you're going so fast. You shoot a rocket; it's off by like one percent. You know, I think this happens with rockets too. So like they they shoot, they fire so fast, and if they're off trajectory by a little bit, they just they never they never ma- maintain an orbital path around the around the Earth, and they just fi- fly off into space. Hmm. So a little bit of a of an off, being off a little bit means makes it or breaks it for mm-hmm. those you know high speed, high performance rocket like things. So if you know Chris has got 900 pounds on his back and he's off by a little bit in some aspect of his form or Ben mm-hmm. like that's going to the effects that that's going to have because of the load that are being lifted there in terms of joint forces and muscle coordination could be enough to cause a you know tragic injury yeah if he's off by a smidge whereas you know if you're squatting 135 or you know you see like some people like you'll see people like uh, they just got like stupid strength like quote unquote retard strength, they're just like they get out of the. I think that's why they call it this. Some people are so naturally strong, mm-hmm. and you look at them, you're like, that form is terrible. You could tell they've never done that. You know, mm-hmm. like 
like they they're, they're I, I like I use the term motor moron sometimes like like that person like they're just like all over the place but they're yeah. so strong so you can get away with that with lighter loads but once you get to those higher loads that you can only lift because so much skill is there then your nervous system has to be really really in play mm. and really tuned in so yeah there's a higher level beyond developing the ability to grind that really is a matter of I think in large part when you when you're trying to do those low 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 rep lifts like triples or doubles or singles like powerlifters which I don't try to do yeah, yeah you know me either first. so so that's one aspect so the, let's go back one more thing that this is kind of a big piece okay if we go back to that plot with the um, comparing the squat and the leg press and the knee extension all right give me just a second here that was the one we already looked at Okay. And I'm going to flip the script back around on you, Scott, and see, see if I can cause your brain to untwist <laughs> itself and twist back the other direction. All right. We've got that one back up. Okay. So here's the interesting thing. So this person, like if you take the, an individual in that study, they've increased quad size. The legs are bigger. I assume the hamstrings are. Everything's gotten bigger because they've squatted. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you law of diminishing returns is going to tell us that their squat gains are going to be uh, – less and less over time they got that 70 percent increase in squat run run rep max over two or three months of training what have you but it's not going to keep increasing they're not going to get a you know 140 percent in the next three months and you know another 70 percent i wish peter yeah. off yeah yeah no right it would be awesome and that's what we see in the logbook you pick up a new exercise even if it's not really new for you but it's one you haven't done in a bit and you get good for three or four or five workouts you get good strength gains and eventually um, those will start to peter off. And so you've got, you've got something interesting going on there. And this is the other aspect of those neurological, um, that neurological component that is, is sort of going on underneath that we really can't do much about it. Just the nature of how things work. Mm -hmm. But let's say you're someone who does a really good job. Your, your form is dead on. You've got a good mind muscle connection. Your tempo is the same. You're not doing any bouncing or stretch shortening. So comparing workout by workout, Everything is the same, but you're, you're increasing the load. Well, something is going on there underneath in terms of activation such that you're able to get a better stimulus because your nervous system is learning how to lift those heavier loads. Mm -hmm. At least we hope to some degree. This is where it gets a little bit tricky because it made actually your nervous system, if you look back at one of those first plots we have, is that the amount of activation per amount of muscle actually may be going down. But... We presume that if you compare like workout one versus workout 10, where everything's the same in terms of your form, number of sets, blah, 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 and you've increased your strength by 20%, um, that now you're getting a stronger stimulus because mm -hmm. you're, you're lifting heavier loads or using more, more weight. But you keep going beyond that and you don't get stronger anymore. So you're not able to evoke in your training a greater stimulus from lifting a heavier load or doing more reps. You're just sort of plateauing out. Yeah. And what you see now then, and you saw this at the beginning too, but what you see now then is that if you're an advanced person, if you put on five pounds of muscle in the course of a year, that's pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. And that's distributed over the whole body. So let's say two and a half of that is in your lower body, which is the primary muscles that are involved with the squat, which is taking that example. And that two and a half muscle pounds, like now you you're getting that over 12, 12 months. So you know what what are we getting? Like a quarter of a pound 
every month, that's yeah. not going to show up as tremendous strength gains. So you're not going to see in the gym. I mean, you can still microload a little bit, and that's going to that's definitely helpful to do. But you're not. So now what is happening strength wise is represented what's happening muscle wise in those lifts that you've been doing for a while. Mm-hmm. But now let's think about the knee extension and think about it just as another lift. You've now got more muscle, but you've got no strength gains on the knee extension. Okay. Or let's say it's a tip the barbell squat, and if we went and compared that during some a hammer strength squat or a leg press or something else that trains the same musculature, you're not going to have those same strength gains. But if we if we go then after you plateau out on the squat and you can't evoke a greater stimulus because you've just been doing that exercise for so long, you change exercises. Yeah. And guess what? You still can train pretty hard. But what happens to the strength gains you get in that new exercise over time? It starts to go up. Sure. You'll once again start progressing. And in progressing, you're going to increase the stimulus on those muscles that are being trained. So the novel exercise that you swapped out for the one that plateaued, mm-hmm. that novel exercise now becomes a novel stimulus. And a novel stimulus is what you want for new muscle growth. Hmm. The whole reason why the muscle grows is because the stimulus demands it to, so to speak. Mm-hmm. To use a kind of a Fletcherism here is that you're forcing the muscle to grow with a novel stimulus. And you're only going to get that in some way, shape, or form by asking the muscle to do something it hasn't previously done. Yeah. And the novelty of that new exercise creates some new activation patterns or something new and different is going on such that you're getting more loading or more reps or higher weight in progressing strength-wise or performance-wise when you're using that new exercise. Mm, yeah. So that's why we swap exercises. That makes sense. And you'll and you'll see that right off the bat. Let's say you're doing barbell squats, and then you go do the hammer strength squat. Same number of sets, relative loads the same, reps are about the same, and you just get sore as shit. Yeah. Right. It's a new activation pattern. Something different about it that tells you that you stress the muscle in a way you hadn't previously, hmm. which is exactly what you want. Hmm. Novelty of stimulus, yeah. so that there's something that requires an adaptation. Yeah. So. That's what's pretty cool about that is like if you think about the knee extension, they've got over those let's say let's say it was three months study three months of study they got a sixty or seventy percent increase in the squat, nothing in the knee extension, but they've got ten percent more muscle mass. Now imagine they just started doing knee extensions. How yeah. fast their strength gains go up? Yeah, and that's even a more quad focused exercise. So that they could harness strength gains off of that and ride that for a long time. Maybe they just did knee extensions and leg presses drop the squat for a while, their squat would go down, they might lose a little bit, maybe, maybe not, mm-hmm. but then they could then um, re-harness using the squat, hopefully because they've spent three or four months gaining more muscle mass through those other exercises, which now can be applied to the squat. So you just simply harness those periods of time of novelty hmm. and underlying increases in stimulation that come as a part of the nervous system doing what it does mm-hmm. to allow for those performance increases, learning how to stimulate the muscle to do what you're telling it to do, which is lift heavier loads for the same number of reps or getting more reps with the same loads or both. And so the nervous system then becomes your friend because it's learning how to how to evoke a greater stimulus because you're requiring it to. Mm, okay. You're yeah. asking that. That's your voluntary. That's like, we're going to do this. I'm going to get 12 reps no matter what. Come hell, higher water. And you do because that's a reasonable goal to have. And the nervous system figures out how to make it happen. So 
the nervous system adaptations can be a good thing because that's what allows us to some degree to progress incrementally in a progressive fashion when we're rotating exercises in and out over time. Yeah, it really so, it gets me thinking too about how important it is to have some variety in my workouts um, you yes. know, to, to not just rely on that the one thing that I love, you know. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. squats are king. You know, a lot of people would argue that like, hey, if you did one exercise, squat, which I mean, there's probably some some good, it's probably not bad advice, but, you know, it's also leg one, press, yeah. also extensions, all these things, um, I mean, are, are going to have, you know, quite a quite a role in the in the development. In the in the fortitude training loading sets, um, people pick three primary exercises, let's, let's literally for thighs which is glutes, quads, hams, adductors, kind of lump them all together. Mm -hmm. So that might be like a barbell back squat and then a machine squat and like a leg press, let's say. Okay. And let's say back's their favorite. But they're also, and I did this in part for some other reasons, but one of the reasons I, I set up the loading sets, so they do a compound exercise and then an isolation exercise. So you might do a squat, a knee extension, a squat, a hamstring curl, and then a squat again if you're using the highest volume tier. So... You love squats. You want to squat. Like you feel like you're not even if you're not squat. If squats not part of your problem, you're not a man. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, if it's not the program, like it's you're not a bodybuilder. It doesn't work. You have to have squats. So you're moving along over time, trying to make progress on the squats, and you're plateauing on barbell squats. Hmm. So one of the things you can do, and it employs the same thing because remember, there's something going on with the activation pattern, which is allowing us to get those increases in strength over time even without giant increases in muscle mass and those that that's part of the what is probably novel and part of the learning process such that when you do something you haven't done for a while you get really sore because the activation pattern doesn't know quite what to make of it right. or it's just a different activation pattern that you haven't had before so it's a novel stimulus because of that so you're you're moving along like you've been squatting for you know say four months and your squats nothing's going up so what I would then tell people to do is keep the squats in there. Well, one option is I want you to now put the knee extensions first. Mm -hmm. So your first set is knee extensions, and then you so you pre-fatigue, and then you go and you squat. Well, that creates a weak link in the quads, mm -hmm. and it alters the it to, feels totally different. Uh, I've got someone I won't say it is I want to, but someone who I helped with a couple things who's now doing some pre-fatiguing stuff for chest. Okay. And it's a really strong, is a, is a pro, really strong guy, and he had never done that before. And he's, the first time he did it, when he went to his presses, he was like flabbergasted as to how much he felt it right in his chest. Hmm. I'd say he Dave Henry, but I don't think it's Dave Henry. I've seen him do no, pre-fatiguing a long time ago. No, no this, isn't, this isn't Dave, someone else. Okay. But anyway, but just an example of someone that just, it just, that just worked for, and he could tell, like, the first, it was like he sent me, he's like, holy shit. Yeah. He felt it so much in his chest more than he had. And that was just with pre-fatiguing exercises. So you oh. do that now. I think with, I know. I'm going to guess after the show. You probably, yeah, I'm sure you do. So uh, you do that now with the quads, and then you hit the squats. So those squats feel totally different. Yeah, yeah. And your, your, your load has to go down or your, or your reps go down, one of the two, because of the pre-fatiguing. Just the simple fact that you fatigued one of the muscles that wasn't otherwise. Yeah, especially if you're squatting in a way that you know, like a high bar squat or what have you, you're trying to literally get the quads, whatever you happen to be doing to using the squats for, and so you have, so you have a now you have a new starting point because you've mixed things up. So now you do knee extension, squat, 
hamstring curl squat and then maybe a last set of squats or maybe you put the hamstring curl between the second and the third set of squats you can do it all sorts of ways you've switched the order and so now you have a new baseline and you start to progress from there because it basically becomes kind of a new exercise given the pre-fatigue in there. It feels totally different for some people sure. having pre-fatigue, like this person I just mentioned. So then you progress. You get to keep squats in your rotation. Yeah. And when you plateau with that order of exercises, you switch it up a different way. You put the hamstring curls first. Huh. And then you have pre-fatigued hamstring curls. Or maybe you put hamstring curls and the knee extensions, like one right after another. If you want to, you could do that. I don't mind people like straying from the standard template I have. Yeah. And then you do your three sets. You could do it that way. So, but you get to keep squats in there because you like those and you're driven to do them and you, and it's motivating. And then of course there's bands and chains and all those sorts of things you can do to keep them in. But, but all those, all those order of exercises, bands and chains are ways to add in variety, which match the loading curve to the strength curve or simply change the nature of the exercise so that it's novel enough that you get sore. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because I, I don't get this so often anymore, but people used to like call me out on, you know, on Instagram and say, why you do all these weird exercises? And, and I kind of explained this to him. I was like, why don't you stick to the basics? Like I still do do the basics, but uh, I just heard from another client actually today who I have doing, um, you know, those row stop deads. Yes. Remember that the row stop deads? Yeah. yeah. I suggested he do those and actually do some really slow rack deadlifts. Okay. And, and because I just been seeing something in his uh, in in his pictures, his check in pictures that I wanted to sort of focus on his back a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And he said he's like, he did both. He ended up incorporating both of them into the same workout, as it turned out. Yeah, which doesn't surprise about him, which is awesome. I, I, I not, it's not criticism. He's just going for it. That's how he is. And he said he could hard, he couldn't hardly sleep. He was so sore. Oh my gosh! This guy's training for decades. Yeah, he's been doing death. He's been doing Ben of Rose. He's like, what the hell? Like, why the hell did this happen? And it's because it was so novel and so different, and those exercises, the way I had him do them, simply required him to use his lats in a way that, despite the fact that he's been doing deadlifts and rack deads, he's been doing bent over rows. All the components are the same. It's not like, like I had him like you know hanging you know by his bootstraps you know off the roof of his house you know using a dumbbell while he was whistling Dixie through a kazoo. <laughs> it was nothing crazy. Right. You know, it was just a, just a change in form, a little bit of change in tempo, and the nature of those exercises demand that his back be involved in a way that he had never done that. He had never done either of those. And he put them both in the same workout and had a hard time sleeping from the soreness. I think if I'm getting it, like literally the soreness came on so fast, it was the day of the of the workout. Oh, you know that's going to be a rough one. That, and you know those are exactly when you get sore that <laughs> And I remember the first time I did the rack deadlifts this way. People might be asking. This is um, this is something that uh, I Dante first no mentioned this, like doing really slow rack deads. And I said, okay, well here's what I'm going to do because I I knew I had that tendency to speed up tempo. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm going to use a metronome. Oh and I yeah. Think he said, well you go ahead if you want to. So I I've always when I've suggested I always suggest they actually literally get a metronome. Yeah. So you start from your normal pulling height, you know, below the knee or mid chin or whatever it might be yeah. with a weight that you would probably be like half or less of what you might do for, you know, a set of eight to 10. It's got to be really light. And basically one second up, so sort of explode up. Eventually there's going to be no explosion because you'd be so fatigued, but pull up fast. And then once you get to the top, go zero, one, 
two, three, four, up, zero, one, two, and try to make the descent even. So you're not like really slow at the top and then dropping at the bottom. Mm-hmm. It's got to be, you know, the same same rate of descent through the entire four seconds. That's a brutal. At the bottom, that's a brutal negative. And and you have to just keep going. If you can't stay on tempo, then the set's over with. Hey, I got so a tip too. Hot tip. You don't hey, even what? need a. You don't even need to buy a metronome now. You can just. I was gonna say. I was gonna look for an app. Oh. But yeah, I looked yeah. at. I just typed it into Google, and literally, it, it's like the thing. It's just a widget or whatever. It's a thing on. Yeah. Of course. It's just yeah. right on there. Yeah, you don't even need to download anything. Put it on your headphones. You don't have to, to bother anyone in the gym with your, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, <laughs> right, TikTok, right. TikTok. Although that would but, be a lot sweeter so- to get that thing out, wind it up, and. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little, uh, little electronic one. In fact, it's probably in my gym bag still. I just a little bag of good, you know, tricks. Yeah, yeah. My little, yeah, my little like spy bag of bullshit that I carry around with me. And you know, shit's going to get real serious if Scott pulls the metronome out. You're going to be hurting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember like, because Dave and I, speaking of, we would do those and he'd be like, oh, he'd see the metronome and he'd be like towering, you know? He'd <laughs> be like, a, like worse oh, than a cattle shit. fraud, like, you know? Like, yeah, it's like the cattle fraud, like, you know, some dogs, you'd like get out the nail clippers and yeah. what you're going to do and they, they <laughs> took a dick off or like trying to get him in the bath. Like, no, not the metronome. Yeah. So... But that it's just tempo, and you know that's a force mind most connection. So anyway, um, the the point there is that those new exercises, the fact, the simple fact that in that particular study they had muscle growth, but they had no strength gains on those exercises they didn't do, suggests that there's room for neurological adaptations and an increased load that can come about in doing those new exercises you haven't been doing. Yeah, and just learning how to do those as long as you keep your form like. You know, don't be a don't train like an asshole, so to speak, and start, um, you know, bouncing with the weight, and what have you. Keep your your form under control. Use a good mind muscle connection, et cetera, et cetera. But those those exercises you have been doing are ones that are ripe for exploiting the fact that your nervous system will allow you to lift heavier loads and thus produce a greater stimulus for growth over time. Mm-hmm. You just want to make sure you're not allowing. Other some of those other neurological mechanisms like the stretch shortening dis- disinhibition we saw with the, the the box jumps and the plyometrics to come into play. Yeah. So you want to like let the nervous system do its thing, and some of that is psychological drive, learning how to grind, so that you can get greater stimulus. But don't don't start cheating like rolling your shoulders back on curls, throwing in body English intentionally, you know, just to get more reps. Unless, of course, you're doing that because you're being a very mindful manipulator of the fact that the force muscle, the force velocity curve of skeletal muscle tells us that there's a reason why a little bit of body English would make sense in terms of loading. Yeah. That's the topic next for next week, maybe, if we get into it. Oh, I look forward so, to that. Yeah, it's cool stuff. So I think I think that's the thing. So this is, you know, this... Uh, we got we, we talked about the the cross training effect, which is pretty in- interesting. The fact that we see the activation level for a given amount of force going down, so the nervous system's figuring out, you know, in training, what's going on there. The muscle also got bigger. That stretch shortening cycle and rep tempo, like l- pretty much to some degree, if your rep tempo is speeding up, mm-hmm. just just empirically, just from what I've seen, like as a coach and uh, myself and people I've worked with. The, that faster rep tempo means you're you're probably doing somewhat of a stretch shortening cycle. It yeah. It just, it just does. 
I mean, you're just doing some, when you start to go too fast, that's the only way that's coming about. Yeah. Um, you can feel it. Also you can feel oh, it. Because yeah. I, I, I do that. You know, um, I, I've mentioned it a bunch of times now, but the way David Smith had uh, helped me with my incline dumbbell press is to really control that negative down. And, you know, I, I pretty much try to like give that a pause. I try to, I try to be a control of everything I'm doing, but I will find myself getting ahead of myself a little bit. It's a heavier weight. I'm getting excited and I see myself starting to move faster. But when you slow it back down, you feel it because then your ability to get reps changes. You know what I mean? Like oh, you're, yeah. you're cranking it, you're cranking it. And then you're like, Oh shit, I'm getting a little too hyped. Settle it down, Scott. And then it's like, Oh God, now I can't even get another rep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You get stuck faster. Yeah. There's, um, one of the things I can, I can, exp- I have an explanation for this. I don't know if it's, you know, it's just my interpretation of what's going on. But one of the things you find too, when you do that is that you'll be banging out the reps and then your and then your set will come kind of to a screeching halt. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like when, when you die, you don't have as many oh. grinder reps. Yeah. 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 Okay. I could see that. When you do it that way, when you do it that way. Yeah. Huh. So that's kind of a, a sign of that. Interesting. Um, and so, and some of that, there's a couple reasons potentially. One is, you know, you're also in 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 harnessing that stretch shortening cycle. You may be uh, depending on the exercise, but you may be allowing yourself to to sort of rebound through a sticking point in the exercise. Mm-hmm. So you're rebounding and like you're driving through the sticking point, and eventually, um, as you start to fatigue and you can't get as much of the stretch shortening cycle as you were before, mm. that 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 um, uh, sticking point becomes much more evident because you don't have as much sudden, like, bounce. You just hit it and boom, like, you, you kind of hit a wall. Yeah, yeah. you can't bounce through it in that way. Yeah. Um, there's also something like someone asked me a question, which was a really good question actually, on Instagram that I talked about. Like he, he asked or asked, answered for him, which fits in here. He asked, uh, "Can you still maximally activate when you're fatigued? So let's say you reduce your strength level by 25 percent." Can you still activate those high? Th- he didn't say it this way, but basically was wondering: Can you still activate those high threshold motor units mm-hmm. in a fatigue state? And I think you can. The question is whether you can fully activate a muscle anyway. Period. In the first, first and foremost, yeah. that's a hard thing to quantify. That's a whole other side tangent because the way they, the main way that that's been evaluated in the past is with a methodology that's obviously flawed. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Uh, some of the things that they that they demonstrate, given the rest of the literature around strength, so it's hard to know. But one of the things that happens with that stretch shortening cycle, which we see there in that EMG, is that when you get good at that, you you have a facilitation of the uh, activation as opposed to an inhibition. So you're activating more muscle. So you can tighten up the muscle and, uh, and, and harness that elastic energy for the recoil when you bounce back past your sticking point. Mm. And some of that may involve using some really high threshold motor units yeah. that are difficult to get. And those are the ones that would be the least likely to be easily turned on in a fatigue state. Mm-hmm. So fresh versus fatigued, especially when the pain's starting to come in, well, pain will inhibit motor neuron output. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to like be bouncy with the weight and drive in that sort of highly aroused state at the end of a set is less likely to be a possibility mm, for mm-hmm. you. You're likely to kind of lose that neurological capacity at the end of a set. So all of the things being equal, 
you've got a fatigued muscle and everything else, but you just can't do that bouncy stuff anymore mm-hmm. because your nervous system is fatigued. You're in pain, maybe, mm-hmm. um, and other things are going on. So, like all the stuff that happens with that facilitation is no longer within a realm of possibility because you may not be able to fully activate, or at least activate in the same way. Mm. Um, plus, you've also got a slower muscle, too, when it's fatigued. And speed is important, especially if you're moving quickly, because mm-hmm. you want to be able to you want to be able to slow lower it down, but then tighten up at the appropriate time in a coordinated fashion to allow that energy to be translated into the elastic components to then be harnessed. Yeah. So a slower muscle is not going to do very good at that. So be very good at that. People with faster muscle fiber types do better with jumping and ballistic types of movements. And this is a ballistic type of movement. So you're going to lose muscle speed in a fatigue state just because you're fatigued because muscle is simply slower when it's fatigued. That's just the nature of the beast because of the energy ability to supply energy. That makes sense. So, yeah, well, kind of like, and there's a lot there. You play it about 10 times. It might make more sense. But my, my brain is full at this point. If yeah, this is, if I, this I, is my uh, brain, anyway, it, it's up to here at this point. It's good. Yeah, it's no good. No more. Stop. stop with <laughs> so, Anyway, I thought, I thought that would be helpful. That's like it may be a little bit, you know, that's just kind of brain candy, I think, to some degree. It may be like a why. I really didn't even know that. But the bottom line is that the variety of training makes sense and keeping your form the same makes sense. Yeah. So that you can let the nervous system do what it's good at to help you get a better stimulus um, along the route to using progressive overload as a way of, of evoking more muscle growth. Absolutely. So, well, Scott, let's yeah. let's get out of here. We did have a few questions that popped up, but uh, we don't have the time today, so I'll okay. try to I'll try to save these uh, th- stuff that was off topic from this. I'll try to save these. Uh, we could we could do like a Q and A toward the end of the next episode, or or you know whatever. We could figure something out. Um, but with that said, of course, check out Scott's book, "Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach." You guys can't see it in our framing, but I've got it up on the shelf over there. Uh, you can pick that up at byobbcoach.com or check out Amazon. Uh, or it's at Amazon, right? As well as Barnes & Noble. Amazon, Amazon and, and Barnes & Noble both, yeah. You can get the hard copy there. Um, and, of course, go to fortitudetraining.net. You can get the Fortitude Training ebook. It, oh, and my headphones died. They're dying right now. So we're cutting off right at the perfect time. Of course, guys, check out our great sponsor, truenutrition.com. I just got my next order of my Team Skip Blend Protein, as well as the uh, the old school unflavored EAAs. Big old bag, like 50 servings for like 25 bucks. You really can't beat that pricing for some good intra-workout EAAs. Scott, as always, I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for doing all this, my man. Yes. See you guys. Until next time. <laughs>